It is good to be with you today, and I see we have several members of our Thompson High School football team with us uh, this morning, and Coach Youngblood, it sure is great to have you all with us today. Uh, our youth had the honor and the privilege of feeding the team this past Wednesday, and we are so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. Football, you know, I was thinking this past week, football is almost here. It's not almost here, it's here, isn't it, Coach? It is that time of year, and, uh, and I love high school football, college football. I love everything that goes with it. The mascots, the colors, the songs, the cooler weather that hopefully will start to come along with that. But, but there's something about the songs, like the fight songs, right? I mean, there's just something about hearing Rocky Top to get your blood pumping. I love it. But what is it? Oh, yeah, whatever. You guys, I'll pray for you. So, but what is it about those fight songs, right? I mean, it's, when you're in a stadium, maybe for the first time, that's filled with, with Tennessee Vols fans, and they're singing Rock the Top, or, or you're in a stadium filled with Bulldog fans, either local or up there in that other city, Athens, whatever. You know, either way, or Buccaneers, or whatever. When they're all singing a song, and they're all rooting for that team together, there's just something electric about that, isn't it? It's, it's exciting. You feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of a community of people. That's the, the, the power of music. It helps you to, it helps a community to, to form an identity. It helps the members of that community to, to share that identity, uh, to, to become as one. And there's so many memories and so many places and experiences and people that become associated with those songs. Now, that may be a trivial, trivial example for us this morning, but I think it illustrates something that happens even more profoundly when the people of God gather together. And we lift our voice in song. And we bring music and we bring songs and we rejoice together. That's one of the ways that we express our identity in Christ. But the big difference is that when we gather to sing, we're singing in worship of the one true God who alone is worthy of our praises. We're singing for a God not so that He can fight and win, but because He's fought and won. Amen? He has already become victorious over sin and hell and death and the grave. What isn't good is that uh, when we sing our favorite team's praises with more exuberance and joy than we do our Creator and Savior God. Amen? And there's nothing wrong with singing the praises of your favorite sports team. But how much more should we be excited and energized to sing the praises of our God? And I want us to look this morning together at Psalm 95 and discover why our God is worthy of praise and how can we ensure that our worship is worthy of Him. So please turn to Psalm 95. Let me read it, and then we're going to walk through this together this morning. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. 
For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This psalm offers us both a a word of warning and a word of worship. It lays out for God's people a simple picture of what spirit and truth worship should look like. It gives us a liturgy for authentic worship. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is a call to come and praise the Lord. Come and praise the Lord. We begin this psalm with an invitation, an exhortation to come and praise the Lord. Worship begins with adoration. And praising of God as we look up to the glory of God and experience an uncontainable joy because we know who He is and what He has done for us. Verses 1 and 2 answer for us the question, how should we praise Him? What He says, He says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. How should we praise them? Well, the first thing we see is that our praise should be communal. Five times in this psalm, it says, let us. Let us. We must worship God together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, we see that it is joyful and enthusiastic. Not only are we told to sing joyfully, but David even tells us to shout aloud. Now, this is First Baptist Church, Thompson, Georgia. We don't do a lot of shouting aloud in worship, do we? But he says, shout aloud. This is the victory cry of those who've been delivered from exile, who've been saved from death. In Jeremiah 31, 12, God says they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. And Psalm 81, 1 says, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Now again, I know, we're First Baptist Thompson. I get it. We're the big white church on the corner. That comes with a certain demeanor, right? See, we confuse reverence as a worship style. Reverence is not a worship style. Reverence is an attitude of the heart. There's a difference there. You see, we must enter the presence of God with Great joy and celebration. You can revere Christ as Lord. That's what that word reverent means. It means that you are revering God. You can revere Christ as Lord even as you celebrate His resurrection power and redeeming love. In fact, I would argue that if you aren't celebrating the risen Lord with joyful exuberance, you've not revered Him as Christ and God in your heart. He has risen from the dead. Amen? And that is worthy of singing and shouting and celebrating. We should come before Him with music and songs of thanksgiving. That's echoed again in Psalm 100, 1 and 2. If you maybe just look there at the opposite page, you'll see that one. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. See, there it is again. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. When we come worship together, which is the first element of our discipleship process, come to worship together, when we do that, we are entering the presence of God so that we can meet Him face to face. 
Yes, we must do that reverently, but we can do that exuberantly at the same time because Jesus Christ, our high priest, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can enter the Holy of Holies because of His shed blood. That's how we should worship. The second question is why? Why should we praise Him? Look with me back at verse 3, 4, and 5. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Just in these first seven verses, we see some profound names of God that help us understand why He is worthy of our praise. The first we see uh, right up there in verse 1. He is the rock of our salvation. Now, that word rock is a military term. It means a fortress, a stronghold, a refuge from danger. Jesus is the one that we can run to for salvation and deliverance. He is the rock of our salvation. Secondly, He is the great God and King above all gods. Now, that might seem a little strange and confusing at first because... I thought there was only one God, right? That's what we believe. There's only one God. So how can He be the the King above all gods? We have to remember that the people of Israel lived in the midst of a polytheistic culture. And they were surrounded by nations with pantheons of gods and goddesses. And Israel themselves often struggled with idolatry. They would often worship the Lord right alongside Baal and, and these other gods and goddesses. So what David is using here is a common way to express the truth that the Lord is the only true God because all the other gods are fake. They're idols. But the Lord reigns supreme over all heavenly beings, over all principalities and powers, and He crushes all false gods under His feet. As Psalm 86 and 96 demonstrate, Psalm 86, 8 through 10, the psalmist says, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. And then in Psalm 96, we read that earlier this morning. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the nations are what? Idols. But the Lord... He made the heavens. Paul makes similar claims of Christ. That Jesus is before all things and above all things. That He holds all things together. That Jesus is supreme over all creation. Jesus disarmed all the powers and authorities on earth and in the spiritual realm by triumphing over them on the cross. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and beneath the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is why we should praise Him, because of who He is. And third, He is the Creator and the sustainer of all things. In verse 6, David says that He is the Lord our Maker. In verse 7, he says, God our Shepherd, together He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. He's the One who made us and who cares for us. 
And this psalm and these verses beautifully lays out for us the sphere of His heavenly rule and reign. It begins in verse 3 in the heavenly realms. It extends in verses 4 and 5 to the land and the sea. And then in verse 7, it focuses in like a laser on the people of Israel. From the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains, it all belongs to Him. As David wrote in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you were there. If I make my bed in the depths, you were there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And though God is the sovereign creator and ruler of all the cosmos, He is the transcendent God. He is also our intimate shepherd who knows His flock and calls us each by name. He condescends toward us so that we can know Him and worship Him and love Him and hear His voice. This is further expressed by God's hands-on involvement in creation. If you look there in verses 4 and 5, David says that God's hands hold the earth and formed the dry land. He's stressing our Creator God's intimate connection with His creation. He's not some distant, disinterested God. He's hands-on. He's involved in the affairs of His world and He cares about the details of your life. Is this not a God worthy of us giving our thanksgiving and our praise to? Is this God not worthy of our interest and our intimate involvement in in celebrating and adoring together His great power and love? This is the first movement of authentic worship. But let's move on to the second. We begin by coming and praising the Lord, but then we bow and worship the Lord. Look with me back at verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the flock under His care. So we begin with adoration, but then we move to confession and submission. We begin by looking up to the glory of God, but then we must look down and in and marvel at the grace of God. Our posture is He changes from hands raised and eyes lifted in praise to God our great King, to one of humble submission and confession of our sins and our need for His saving grace. True worship involves both. It involves both looking up and kneeling down. In praise we look up to God and reveal and we revel in His awesome qualities and mighty deeds. Like Isaiah, remember Isaiah in the temple. It says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. He heard the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. They sung of his great power and his might. We've done that this morning, haven't we, in our worship? And listen, I just want to say a word about the whole, you know, lifting up your hands thing. Okay, because most of us don't do that. I cannot, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I can't talk without using my hands. I mean, I think if you were to tie my hands behind my back, I couldn't preach. I mean, I just, I'm very expressive with my hands. Well, guess what? If you're naturally expressive with your hands, be expressive with your hands in worship. It's okay. That's how I talk. 
If you're not expressive with your hands when you talk, don't force it and be fake and think, well, I better raise them while I'm worshiping, right? Just be natural. Just be you, okay? So yes, we can raise our hands. We can lift our eyes. We can shout and sing for joy. But then there comes a moment as we come into the presence of our great and holy God that we're reminded how small and weak and sinful we are. See, Isaiah went from that great vision to say, Woe is me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In our worship services, if we fail to bend our knees in humble confession and submission, then we run the risk of our praise turning into nothing more than religious entertainment without any real spiritual enrichment. But when our praise and adoration are done in spirit and in truth, singing must give way to silence as we become lost in wonder, love, and praise of our great God. Worship isn't about what we get out of it. Whether that's edification or inspiration, worship is about what we give to our God. Worship is an act of surrender. As we turn our lives over to Him, or as Paul wrote to the Roman church, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Here in Psalm 95, David uses three different Hebrew words, words that all reflect a humble, submissive posture. He says to bow down. He says to kneel. We're to do this in worship. And the word for worship there means to prostrate yourself, to just throw yourself down on the ground in a posture of submission and surrender to God. Why is our God worthy of such surrender? Why should I trust and commit myself to Him as a living sacrifice? David tells us it's because He's our Maker. He's our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now this is a common Old Testament confession of faith reflecting God's covenant with His people. Time and again throughout the Bible, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. We see that time and again. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, which by itself tells us that He can be trusted, that He is worthy of our worship, our praise, and our lives. In Psalm 23, David says, He is our good shepherd who provides for us and protects us and guides us down the right paths for His name's sake. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who has made us. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. In John 10, Jesus says, He is that good shepherd who knows His sheep by name and even lays down His life for His sheep. Worship begins with God's glory and then takes us straight to the cross, to God's grace. He made us. He saved us. He cares for us. And our worship must reflect that gospel of grace. We should proclaim every Sunday who He is and our relationship with Him. That is why we must not hesitate to fall before Him in total surrender. But there's another movement in Christian worship. See, our adoration leads us to confession and submission. 
which in turn prepares our hearts for instruction. Worship in spirit and truth means we must also hear and obey the the Lord. We must hear and obey Him. Look with me back at verse 7 there, the very last phrase of verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. See, the Word of God is a vital part of vibrant Christian worship. Hearing and heeding God's voice must be central to authentic worship because it's not just enough for God to hear our voice in praise. We also need to hear His voice to us. We need to hear what God has to say to us as His Scriptures are read and as they are preached. Warren Wiersbe said, The way we treat the Word of God is the way we treat the God of the Word. How do you treat the Word of God in your daily life? Is it an afterthought? Like a spare tire, you pull it out in emergencies? Or is it like your daily bread that sustains your life? What about in worship? Do you come to worship with a holy anticipation that you're going to hear a word from God that is relevant to your life today? One of the reasons we stand together for a formal reading of Scripture and we say this is the Word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God, is because we want to treat God's Word with respect, with reverence. We want to prioritize it and let people know unmistakably that we're a church that worships and teaches and lives by the Word of God. And that it is God's Word for God's people. And we should give Him thanks. David wrote today, If you hear his voice. That's a call to immediacy. He's saying, listen to what God has to say to you right now. Moses reminded the new generation of Israelites who were finally about to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 5.3, he said, It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. With all of us who are alive here today. God's word isn't just for the past. It's not for people who are dead and gone. God's Word is living and active. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And it is able to dive deep into our hearts, to lay bare our fears and our weaknesses, our self-deceptions and our sins. We must approach God's Word for us today. And the only thing that can hinder us from having this kind of of exuberant joy in worship, the only thing that can hinder us from confessing and submitting ourselves to God, the only thing that can hinder us from hearing God's Word for us today is our own hard hearts. That is what God says to the people of Israel in this word of warning that begins in verse 8. God reminds them of two tragic events in their history. The first... Their complaints and doubts in Rephidim, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 17. The people of Israel, were, were, they had escaped slavery in Egypt. They had seen God do these mighty deeds, but now they were thirsty. And rather than trust the God who delivered them from Egyptian slavery with such signs and wonders, they chose to grumble and complain against God. And yet God in His infinite grace and mercy still gave them water to drink. And so Moses renamed the place Meribah and Massah, which means strife and testing. The second tragic episode was at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13, 14, where the people failed once again to trust God. Rather than trust 
that God would deliver Canaan into their hands. Instead, they rebelled and they rejected God. And they said, hey, let's go back to the good old days. You know, we were slaves in Egypt. And they completely rebelled against God. And so God punished that entire generation, causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, here in uh, verse 10, God says that he was angry with that generation for 40 years. This is the only place in all the Old Testament that this Hebrew verb, which means to be angry, is used of God. The only place that's used in the whole Bible. Why was God so angry with them? It's because they had seen His power. They'd experienced His love and His care in amazing ways in the past, yet they failed to trust the simplest of needs to Him in the present. They doubted God's active daily presence with them when they said, Is the Lord among us or not? See, when our hearts are hard and we distrust God's grace and mercy and power for meeting our needs today, we tend to try and, trust, try and test the Lord. And when you put God to the test, listen, that is a self-centered demand for signs and wonders in the present as if the signs and wonders of God saving and creating deeds in the past are not enough. Think about all that God has done. Is that not enough reason for you to trust Him today? Do you need Him to give you a sign right now? How self-centered. That's what hardening our hearts is. It's seeing what God can do but then refusing to trust Him so He can do it for you. And the result of hardened hearts is that they begin to become wandering hearts. Hearts that go astray, as if you never knew the words and ways of God. We begin to pursue other gods and follow the ways of the world and conform to its pattern rather than conforming to the image of Christ. And so the final judgment that God says is, "...they shall never enter my rest." Now, to that rebellious generation of Israelites, that meant they couldn't enter the promised land. But the writer of Hebrews broadens that rest to include the salvation rest and inheritance that is ours in Christ. When you go home today, read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is our rest. From the religious burdens, from a works-based salvation, and the need to create our own sense of self Worth, the freedom that is ours in God is real rest. And of course, there's that coming rest in eternity when Christ returns. Both in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, we see the antidote to our hard hearts. I just want to read you the last couple of verses there in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. See, the antidote to our hard hearts is to hear the word of the Lord. It's to submit ourselves to the commands of God. To His rule and reign in our heart as our Creator, our Redeemer, our King, and our Shepherd. God's presence is as real today as it was in the time of Christ. God's voice still speaks to us today by His Spirit through His living Word. And it's not just enough for us to sit in pews and listen to other people sing. It's not just enough to sit and fill out your little outline on the back with sermon notes. Listen, you can leave here 
with this thing full of notes and your heart still empty of God's presence? You've got to listen. You've got to hear and you've got to respond in obedience. Hebrews 4, 7 says, God again set a certain day calling it today. Today is the day of decision for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, if you want to know spiritual rest and freedom that is only found in Christ, you need to answer Him today. Today is the day of decision for you. Not tomorrow. Not next week. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. What has God said to you this morning? Don't delay in responding. Don't harden your hearts if you've heard the Lord's voice today. Is God leading you to confess your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ? Come now. Is God leading you to seek baptism? Come now. Is God leading you to join our church? Come now. Is God calling you into full-time Christian ministry? Come now. You need to come and kneel at this altar and renew your heart in worship and praise and confession and submission. Come now. If you have heard God's voice this morning, come. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for Your Word to us. Thank You for Your Spirit who convicts us of our sin and of the rightness of Your Word and of our need for Your saving grace. And I pray, Father, that as You've spoken to our hearts today, I pray, Lord, that we would not delay in being obedient. Whether that's to come down here and to pray at this altar, to make public a decision, to follow You, to join this church, to follow Your call, or whether it's to go out these doors and to share the gospel with someone, to meet someone's need, to be a better husband or wife, mother or father, son or daughter, may we not harden our hearts. May we obey you today. In Jesus' name, amen.